My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest this week is an accomplished director on both the silver and streaming screens. She's the director of 2014's Iranian Vampire Spaghetti Western, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. In 2016, she helmed The Bad Batch, which is, for my money, the best post-apocalyptic cannibal love story ever set in the state of Texas. More recently, you may have seen her work on FX's Legion, CBS All Access's The Twilight Zone, and last but certainly not least on Hulu's Castle Rock. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Miss Anna Lily Amapor. <laughs> That's quite an intro. Thank oh, you. thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. How are you doing? How are you holding um, up? Yeah, that's an appropriate opener. Um, yeah. <laughs> we got we're obligated to ask everyone. Right? When you when you um were describing the bad batch, I thought you were going to say it's the the best COVID <laughs> prediction movie uh, <laughs> that happened to America. Um but yeah, I'm I'm holding up. I'm just here holding on to my sanity while insanity penetrates us all. Are you in LA? I am. Are you tired of your house yet? You know, I really am. And it's a strange thing with this whole situation because I actually realized in the last, I guess, six years, this is the most time because of shooting films and projects and I'm never home. I was before March, I hadn't been in LA for almost 10 months. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not, generally home for more than maybe a month or so at a time so it's like i'm getting acquainted with a different rhythm i kind of feel like um the guy and the other guy in adaptation like both (laughs) at the same time you're both brothers i'm both the nick cages yeah 100 (laughs) and one of them is about to die (laughs) (laughs) let's see who who it's gonna be yeah which one we're not here to talk about Charlie Kaufman. We are not. We are here to talk about Pet Cemetery, and we'll get into why you why you chose this title in just a minute. But first, can you tell me um, or tell us a, a, a little bit about your Stephen King origin story? Like, how did how did Stephen King come to be on your radar in the first place, and what are your memories of growing up with that? I think as as a kid, because I was really into, I was just really into horror. Everything, meaning mm-hmm. everything from haunted houses and, and, and Halloween to horror movies. And I was really into reading when I was a kid. I was probably into, started getting into Stephen King books when I was like, uh, I think I was uh, 11 when I read. Mm-hmm. The first one I read was called uh, Dragon Slayer. Eyes of the Dragon. Eyes of the Dragon. Uh, yes. That's it. Dragon Slayer is a movie. Yeah, I think that was um, one of Scott's first ones, too. Yeah. That was well, that my was, first. Yeah, that was my very first. My parents went on vacation to Hawaii and left me with my grandparents. My grandmother had a copy of the book, and I got her to like read it to me at night, like at bedtime. And Your that was grandma sort of, read it to you? Yeah, yeah. And oh, wow, I must have been like, you know, 
five or six, you know, very young. But uh, how gleefully did she read the part where the little boy kicks the dog to death? Um, pretty gleefully, you know, yeah. more than she needed she, to. No, she get no, really she, disturbingly into it. No, but I remember being really upset by that part. And I remember vaguely her sort of like comforting me over it. I've All always right. been like a big like animal person. So even at that age, I was I was upset by that. But but that's a good starter pistol for uh, getting into Stephen King. The strange thing is I don't really remember anything about it and and at all. But I um, Pet Cemetery was the second one. I I mean I read a, a lot of his books after that. I just got into him, but I couldn't. The only one that I couldn't read that scared me too much was it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Did you start reading it and then then you couldn't finish it, or what's exactly just the concept? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. How far did, did you get? Do you remember? I don't remember. I just remember being having this feeling of anxiety with with the drain and stuff. And I just like didn't want to go farther. <laughs> See the miniseries or movie adaptations? I it? remember seeing part of the miniseries. I vaguely remember when I was mm-hmm. a kid. There was something that when I was a kid that I remember also not finishing being too too stressed out by and then yeah even when i i saw the movie the first movie the new one like not this i didn't see the sequel but i saw the first new it 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 was entertaining i I definitely got like it's definitely got a very specific kind of child tension and terror in it that's like yeah it's it's powerful it's it's interesting that that you started with pet cemetery which is one of his most disturbing books, and and, uh, and 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 uh, you you were able to get through that, but I it, would, in whatever reason, just just uh, the thing about Pet Cemetery, and so what's interesting is I didn't rewatch the movie, or you know, I read the book first, and I did, you know, and then I saw the movie, but it's like I didn't rewatch or reread or revisit when I when, when I said I was going to speak with you guys about mm-hmm. about this. So it's I'm literally remembering everything with my child mind, you know, my twelve right. year mind and it's like I think like it's so vivid to me the experience of reading that book was so powerful and so emotional and it was terrifying but it was terrifying in true like the true horror of some of the darkest topics about loss and death like something that's Mm -hmm. so very real it's different than it which is more like just there's a huge scary monster somewhere you know in in the darkest place that's just a scary thing it's like even right now if i stick my hand in a hole i'm gonna be stressed out because it's (laughs) like there's a dark hole you don't know what you know what i mean like that's a specific almost like it's like an anatomical fear it's a, it's a different kind of fear it's like in 3d space kind of fear the fear that's in pet cemetery is like truly connected to my first feelings uh, like real understanding of of what death is and mm-hmm. and going through it and what loss is and so it i think that that's why it was so it's so vivid to me i can remember that book and the movie I just can remember in a vivid way, like, you know, like when you remember things as a child, like the time you fell off your bike and you remember certain memories so vividly, it's like, I remember that book, like it, like it's something that happened, you know? Wow. It, How did you end up getting a copy of the book? Like were your, were your parents readers or? Was no, it my pa- no, they weren't readers, but my parents are, you know, my dad's a doctor and my mom's a nurse. They're very, you know, scientifically minded. And, and as a kid, when I was into, 
horror movies because I was also renting. I think I watched Faces of Death when I was like eleven as well. Jesus so it's like fuck. my dad would just let me choose anything. We'd go to the video store and I would just go to the horror section and choose. I saw every everything, and it was like, and I was going into the emergency. I was going into the operating room with him to watch him. He's an orthopedic surgeon, so I I saw him operating. I was like really just fascinated by stuff, and they took it all as they took it in a different way. They thought, oh, she's into the human. I don't know. I think they tried to think somehow it meant I was going to end up being a doctor. Or <laughs> yeah, like but um, she's into the craft and technique of of surgery. <laughs> but. But things turned out a little different than that. So. <laughs> it was funny, though, because it was like Stephen King books was one side of it, and that's all I was reading. And then the other side, you're going to love this, and this is where you're talking to a girl. It was romance novel. So I was basically <laughs> binge reading Stephen King and romance novels simultaneously for like five years. And if you think of it that way, it probably completely explains my, my, <laughs> yeah. my yeah, that, that tracks that definitely tracks. What kind of romance novels are we talking like Danielle Steele? Or are we talking Danielle like young Steele adult just stuff? One, I mean, no, not, it's like Danielle Steele. Like, yeah, like trashy. They're all the same. It doesn't matter right. who is the, the, the cover, <laughs> right. the guy and the girl is the exact same thing. Like it's there's the Fabio cover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. guys. He's wearing a shirt, but it's open all the way and sort of billowing. Not unlike what Jason Momoa looked like in the bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all starting all to make sense up. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't think he wears a. Sh- does he wear a shirt at any point in the bad batch? No, he he absolutely does not. Well, <laughs> a wise creative choice on your part, I think. <laughs> well, I don't think he, anyone was anyone was complaining about that. He's mighty. So how big, how big is that guy? Like you're, you're tiny. Goodness. Like, he's big. You know, it's so funny. Cause we had this conversation. He is a big, big gorilla of a man. He calls himself a silverback sometimes. <laughs> it's like, like, he is a big, big man, but it's so funny because there's something about him where I just feel like whenever I'm hanging around him, or maybe it's just me and I'm not aware of my size. I feel like I'm the same size. It's when I look at pictures that I'm like, oh, he's so much, <laughs> he's so much larger in form. Yeah, he's gigantic. I, I, I think um, he's a big. You're just trailing off, and we're all thinking about Jason Momoa. But <laughs> so you read the book, and then you saw the movie. Uh, did you watch it pretty closely after you read the book, or was there some time in between? Do you remember? <laughs> I think there was some time in between. I don't really remember. Um, I I remember the just having it be the second book of his that I read is more of a kind of marker. It's more specific. Right. Then everything kind of blurs together. I don't remember. But again, with the movie, and I'm sure it's like partly residual from how powerful the book was and the story of the book, just remembering it the way I do, it's like... Everything in it, all the aspects, the little vignettes and and stories and characters in that movie were just, it was different in the book too, because there was this, the Indian burial ground was a little more involved and it was described in a different way than what I pictured in the movie. But also the movie, when I saw it, it was so, so incredibly vivid and impactful and beautiful and brilliant. So I remember them both, but definitely like, I do remember some of the differences in the book, but it's like all those vignettes, it's like the sister 
the sister with mm-hmm. the spinal meningitis and like the jogger, just all of it, all of the pieces. And I think because I grew up, I had lots of cats, lots of dogs. I had rabbits. I had pet mice. I was a kid with a lot of pets and really, you know, it's like no matter what, if you're a kid with pets, your pets die. And it's like yep. really one of our first experiences of I would have to say like in in movies and storytelling experiences of where at your youngest formative ages, what were the first stories you heard and experiences you had that, that made you really feel loss? It would be, it was pet cemetery for me. And that had to do with the animal and losing your, your best friend. And so as a kid, that's like so powerful and, and really you understand, oh, that's like the worst thing that could happen. And then the other movie that had that for me was the, the never ending story. And oh, the yeah. when Artax, yeah. Artax exactly. in the swamp. Yeah. It's like, it's crushing. It's devastating. Such a bummer. Oh my God. I, and it, but I, it's I, so I would, powerful. Right. And I would say that the Artax drowning in the swamp of sadness is actually the most damaging scene out of any of the stuff we're going to talk about today. It's not that it happens. It's watching Atreyu's like How? anguish over it and him, him screaming right. at him and, you know, going through all the stages of pleading and anger and like all that stuff. There's it, that's a very traumatic scene. And that, that affects everybody. You talk, you talk to people who grew up watching those movies they all they will always talk about that scene they'll probably talk about large marge from peewee's big adventure scaring the shit out of them there's always those those cornerstones but yeah i mean it's also funny though to me that that we look at a movie where from king's perspective he's writing it you know the horror in that is a parent losing their child and uh you know but I, i had the same reaction where the gauge stuff didn't really it didn't really affect me as a kid the way that it does now as as an adult, but uh, uh, but I really was affected by the the animals, you know, the dead cat, you know, on the side of the road. I think you got you got it exactly right. There's something as a kid that's what you attach to. That's the worst thing that you could lose, you know, is the most precious relationship you have, the most intimate, the thing you love the the most, and it's like I think that's what a child is to the parent, you know. as well so then but i and i do wonder it's like i don't think i would have been affected by it in in the same ways as an adult i think what what i remember about how i felt about gage dying the kid it was more like this this feeling of doom the everything that that i felt about the kid was the doom of feeling that it was gonna he was gonna come back wrong right Mm -hmm. you know and i was scared of it I was scared of like what the wrong thing was that was going to come back, which is the other side of the terror of it is like this horrible thing. That's not what you, what you loved. It's not your little lovely little cuddly pet. It's like, that's terrifying too. As if my cat came back and you know, it actually, Oh my God, it makes me think of a story from my childhood. I have to, Oh my God. So I'm like, I'm in England and God, I feel like, four four years old probably five years old like wow. which is it's probably like gage's age mm-hmm. yeah so picture a kid like that i i had a pet cat in england named whiskey so i was always in in into cats anyway but this this story isn't about whiskey but i just had to mention him Fair. but anyway so i was playing in my front yard in england and i saw a cat in the road, a black cat. And I went to the cat and it's like, I'm a 
kid that doesn't realize what a dead cat is. And I saw this cat in the road and I thought the cat was sleeping and I love the, I love my cat and I love cats. And I was like, this cat is tired and sleeping and needs to sleep and to, so it can wake up and I'm going to bring it over and give it some milk. I went inside the house. I got this. It's like a table spread, a very nice one. My mother later told me it's like a fancy table spread. I got it and laid it down in the grass in the front yard. And then I went to the cat and picked it up. And I remember it was big because, you know, cats can be kind of big and you're like a kid, you know. Yeah. And I I picked up the and it looked normal. Like it, it wasn't the roadkill that where it's smashed and splattered. When I looked at it on the position that it was, it was just like laying there. And that side of it looked, the side of it that was facing up looked normal. And I reached my hands down, picked up the cat. It was pretty heavy. And I walk it over to the blanket, oh, God. <laughs> lay it down, and it kind of flopped over in a different side. And on the other side of its face, its eye was kind of bulging out of its head. And tongue was kind of out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the other side. And I remember seeing that. And I still brought the bowl of milk over. I don't know what I was doing. But I do remember seeing that the cat looked wrong. And like something was was wrong. And I got my mom and showed her and she was like, Oh my God, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> oh, not the table spread, you know. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that reminds me of when I was uh, probably around that age, like a bird flew into the glass of our patio door and was quite obviously on its way out. I was really upset by this and wanted to um to try to help it. And so my parents like picked up the bird and put it in a shoebox or something. And we were trying to find something to feed it, you know, if like maybe that would help. Clearly this thing had been brained against the door. And I think my parents were kind of humoring me in retrospect and probably in a, in a way that would help me learn about death. But I remember the only thing, like we didn't have any bread at that moment. So my mom got out like some frozen pancakes or something and put them in the box with this bird and we're like trying to feed it. And the bird was like, it was alive, but it was on its way out. It, it had broken something serious, you know, mm -hmm. and and eventually it just died. It's a very distant memory because I was very young. But I do remember somehow intuiting that my parents knew that this bird wasn't going to make it, but they kind of wanted me to see the process a little bit. And mm -hmm. that's the earliest memory I have of, of death, I think. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. That's and then powerful. I didn't go to a funeral until I was in like high school, I don't think. And then I went to a bunch of them. Funerals are, are interesting because it's a different side. It's more like the processing ritual. It's like seeing something physically in, in your, you know what I mean? Like in the moment, mm -hmm. in the moment of expiring, in the moment of the physical form losing its ability that's a whole different thing. Like that, what, what you experience with that bird, that's a really, that the, the, the first time and the only time we get that is, is if we have pets. Cause I had right. my, my first funeral was, was my pets, you know, I'm putting them in the box and digging them. I made gravestones. I did it for all of them, for the mice, for, for, for all of them. My grandma was like, you're doing a funeral for this mouse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, but it's interesting talking it out and thinking about it in, in this way. It's like, yeah, I know, I know Stephen King knows that that's part of it too. He's so, he's so brilliant. 
And famously, this was like the book he didn't want to uh, didn't want to publish, or he, or he thought it was too dark, right, Eric? And this is the one that yeah, Tabitha no, sort of talked him into releasing. This is the one that Tabitha, his wife, read and said, "You can't do this. <laughs> you can't oh, okay. put this out." That it's great. Wow. I think that that she she loved it. But I mean, he, he's essentially uh, he was writing about one of his kids. This is you know essentially that's how they viewed it. When she read it, she read it as him being Lewis Creed and and you know one of their their sons being the kid in the box. And she's just, just like this is too dark. For, from a personal perspective, of course, she's not wrong. Um, but it, I think he needed he owed one book to a publisher before he could get out of that contract. And he's like, well, I got this one that I finished. I'm just going to go ahead and release it. And it ended up being one of his biggest hits. And it's, you know, it's, it's a brilliantly written book. There's something very tonally interesting to that book. That's different, at least up until that point from anything that he had done before, because it Mm -hmm. is so bleak. It doesn't have a happy ending. I mean, listen, Richard Bachman stuff, Um, you know, the stuff he wrote under Richard Bachman didn't have happy endings either, but this is like Stephen King at the full force of his Stephen King powers, um, using that in a way to really gut punch the audience and, uh, in a way that he hadn't done. But I mean, listen, it, it, it's something that, you know, like you said, it has an effect. You remember it, you know, you remember exactly that feeling reading it. Um, you remember that tone and that's something that Mary Lambert I think did brilliantly is, is, uh, execute that tone in the movie. It, it is a very disturbing movie that kind of gets under your skin. I, I don't think there's anything more difficult for people to, to think about and experience or try to understand than, than death. I mean, it's like, it's like the most powerful, there's so much truth in taking on that subject matter and going to the darkest place. What do we love the most? What's the most, because the thing is, I'm also someone who at this moment just recently went through a very big loss of someone very close to me and my family. And I hadn't had that until recently. It's like no, nothing can prepare you. And and it is the most powerful thing. And it it, it is something that's going to happen to everybody. So it's literally like an eminent, undeniable, one of the most primal I, I mean, I don't know what's more powerful, what's more primal and what unifies us more than than, than the fact that we're all going to go out at some right. point. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 wow. It's like incredible. I didn't know his wife. I, I get that. That makes sense. It's like, you, you know, that's someone you're, you're so close with in love and it's your family and it is, it's the worst possible thing you can imagine and think of. And you don't want to go through it. It's like, if you do have to go through it, why go through it by choice? Who knows, actually, what it means for a kid to read something like that. But I, I did really feel like I understood something about how important things are that you love, you know? Yeah, and for sure. If they disappear. And yeah, the movie, I mean, it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. you, may have, you may have already said this, but like around how old were you when you saw the movie? I, I don't remember. I think it was like probably a little later i I don't know i i 13 i don't know the it's a blur maybe i was 13 or 12 or it all blurs together for me like right right when i saw the the movie i just only know the book because it was a very very distinct and specific thing that happened to me but then the movie too was like god it was one of the scariest i mean and now as an i did see it you know now like now meaning within the last decade and it's beautifully made Mm -hmm. yeah it's got style and i love how it's shot and got a great score i love the score for that movie can't remember Mm -hmm. the score 
there, but the, like the scores like got a very heavy like poltergeisty like kid chorus, mm, you know. Ooh. So it's like these disturbing children singing, you know, lullaby ish kind of chorus. Yeah. Oh, terrifying. Yeah, yeah no shit. The thing that I remember about the movie, because then like, and then of course a movie is different and like depending on the filmmaker or whatever, how it comes together, it's like there's different things that you visually, moments in the film that like, you know, you remember or scare you or give you anxiety. And in the, in the movie, the jogger was so well executed and perfectly cast and just like the way he looked in the red shorts and just like the, I think he had red shorts. Is that's how I remember it. Like. He definitely had a red head. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. way it was and how he was like kind of like nonchalant and placid, you know, with with it was like so yeah. as I'm talking about as a kid when I saw it, it was like so chilling to see someone half dead, like mutilated with their brain falling out. Do 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 just like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of funny. Yeah. There was something funny about it and a like, little bit, yeah. Well, and and it's it's also he's the one of the scariest designs in the movie, and he's also the only like purely good person. I said maybe Ellie, maybe the the daughter, you know, maybe the two kids are are, are, are great, you know, whatever. But like Pascal, he, he's only there to help. He's the creepiest looking thing, but he he is a good angel essentially, right? Yeah. He he is there to you know try to dissuade the doctor from burying his kid, you know, in the in the cemetery and following that path. You know, I, there, there is something there. I, I seem to remember when I was young watching the movie, thinking that that was very interesting, that there was this, you know, really creepy guy that's actually the good guy. But did you think the dad was a bad guy? Not bad guy, but he was doing bad things. You know what I mean? It's like he, I, I think that in a previous episode I described that, you know, Pascal is kind of the good angel on his shoulder. He's the Jiminy Cricket of this movie, right? He's the conscious. Like, Pinocchio is not a bad guy, but he needs his Jiminy Cricket. You know, I, I think the the doctor is, Lewis is is such a, he's a tragic character because he's yeah, exactly. he's somebody who's who's so confident at the beginning and he has everything. And by the end, he has nothing. And so much of his, the reasons he has nothing is because of his actions. It's not that he's he's making terrible, selfish, awful, evil calls. It's just he's, you know, he's dealing with his grief in poor ways and that's only making things worse. And and it's such a such an interesting thing because you can relate to it, you know. I relate to it. It's just like there's no it's not like people could be like professional grief dealers. It's really hard to deal with grief. It's like there's moments in, in grieving where you feel like you would do anything if you could like just somehow it's weird if you lose someone and you're like, how can it possibly be that I can't call them on the phone and they're not going to answer? It's like strange. It's it's like the strangest magic trick that like doesn't make any sense. And I, I do feel like there's, there's such a feeling of like desperation if it's someone you really care about, someone you really liked having around and talking to, and like to just be able to do that one more time, I don't know, man. I, I mean, I'm, I'm too scared of what would come back, but I feel like I could see that even more, like how he would just roll the dice and maybe just have one second. It's like, you know, the feeling of like, if you see someone you really want to see who you're never going to be able to see like in a dream and then you don't want to wake up and you just wish that maybe you could somehow dream it again for a second and just kind of, it's like so elusive. You could almost grab it and it's almost real. It's, it's, 
pretty amazing. Yeah. This is yeah. why I, I think like for as dark as that book and the movie are, I'm not surprised that the book was such a big hit, you know, even though it is that bleak and, and dark because Stephen King built his career on tapping into things that are universally frightening to people, yeah. right? As Lily pointed out, there's there's no bigger thing than this that you could deal with. And so it's something that we all have to deal with. So it's all, it's a constant fear for everybody. I understand why he didn't want to publish it and why like you, you would think, oh, this might be too dark, but that's why people reacted to it the way exactly. they did. We need it. We need to find a way to understand the, the darkest things or else they're just going to come and level us. But it does like help you just, Maybe not to know how to deal with it when it comes. Maybe the, the thing that it can do is to make you appreciate the thing when you do have it. Just right. even a little mm-hmm. bit. You do have that cat. It, it, before it gets hit by a car or goes off to die quietly in a bush, you're going to, you know what I mean? Like you could pet your cat and hang out with your cat for a second. You know, you have that time. What's so amazing to me when I think about how effective the book is, just think of how jaded we are and and calloused we are against death in in uh storytelling you turn on any random in er show and you know 18 people will die you know in in that episode or you'll any random war movie people are getting blown away you know left and right and to where you're just kind of you built up a tolerance to it but there's something about the particular set of circumstances in that book and getting to know those characters where suddenly the deaths are meaningful you dread the impending death of the little boy when you kind of know it's coming. Cause King, the way he writes yeah. is, is he lets you know, like he, he tells you that Gage is going to die a hundred pages before he dies. He's giving you that foreboding yeah. thing. And, and it's, 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 it, you know, it's, it's pretty brilliant and it always blows me away whenever, which you know, somebody that, can execute which, it. That is exactly it, which is the ultimate, like the ultimate profound truth about death is that, you do know it's coming. We just are really brilliant at avoiding that thought, you know, that avenue of thought because it's very distressing. And it's like, that is the genius of it is knowing like, Oh, it's coming. You know, it's like totally. This is, it's weird that we're talking about this because that's something that like just in the last few months I've been dealing with. And obviously it's because of everything that's going on in the world right now. But Historically, I have always had a pretty laissez-faire relationship with the concept of death. I've never really feared it or lost any sleep worrying about it. I I know people that are like, oh my God, it's like my biggest fear is dying. And it's never really crept into my consciousness like that. And it's just been in these last few months where I've found myself like staying awake later at night, sweating the whole thing. You know, I'm not a religious guy. I don't believe in heaven or hell. I do believe that there's got to be something after this. Like, I have no evidence of that. Uh, That's just my personal faith is like the belief that, well, there's got to be more to it than this. Otherwise, it's the biggest punchline ever. (laughs) You know, uh, the darkest joke I've ever heard if if we're all here for nothing. But late at night when I'm trying to go to go to sleep in these just, you know, this past summer. It's a it's a thought that does keep me up. You know, when is it going to happen and what will I have accomplished by then? And then what's going to happen afterwards? Is it like in Terminator when the Terminator dies and his his field of vision just like, boop, like closes off? (laughs) Or is it, 
do you experience something in your brain that that transitions you into nothingness? This shit, this shit actually frightens me now in a way that it didn't for the previous 30 years of my life. So anyway, that's a fun topic. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I think the thing that that's interesting, but I would say for me, I don't know that for, like, I'm just listening to your thoughts and thinking about that. And it's like, I think for me now, my biggest like awareness of death is the people I love mm-hmm. are they're all going to disappear. And it's like, it's, it's happened to me in a way where, Oh, like it became very real. And I think that's what that, that pet cemetery does that in that way of, of it's not really about him. The pain for him is, is the thing that he loves most disappearing. There's this sudden death where something happens, like the cat gets hit by a car and, and this kid, you know, passes in an untimely way. And that's, a jarring, shocking thing, but there's also going through the long stages of life. That's a whole different thing. And that's, you know, right. I think it's just psychedelic. I think you just, just like anything else with life, you can't picture how it's possibly going to be. And then you're just going through it and dealing with it. There's a little bit of a competitor in me to go like, oh man, I, I'm, you know, I'd be super psyched to make it to, you know, 90 or whatever. You know, I beat, I beat a lot of people, you know, I yeah. got to li- live my life to the fullest. But then the other side of that is, am I going to be the person in the nursing home who's hadn't had a wife in a decade that, you know, all, all their friends are dead and I'm just kind of too feeble to, <laughs> to travel or do anything, oh, you know, boy. so I'm just kind of stuck wow. there. It's like, it's like, so I don't know. Yeah, no. You just, that's when you just make sure that as you're getting close, you just have some friends somewhere that can like somehow get you some really good acid. And then, yes, <laughs> and then lots just, of drugs. And you just, no, no, I wouldn't take just any, I think like some. Just acid. I think a, I think a nice steady, like trip, you know, like be on right. that be heroin you know it might be nice <laughs> start a heroin i've done a fair amount of acid and i cannot imagine doing acid at like 80 or 90 you know <laughs> like <laughs> i think it could be great man you put your headphones on put some put some grooves listen to an album look at some picture books and look at some put on you know holy mountain and just <laughs> and just put on some, some Floyd on. I would, I would have a library for it. You could have like all the planet earth series and like, <laughs> right. you know, I think you, some, some, you know, animation. Oh, fantastic planet would be good. Oh, fantastic. Right. Planet. That's so just good. curate yourself like a nice and like, what? Well, Cause all you need is your eyeballs. I mean, just so knock wood that your vision is there and your ears are close. <laughs> close and enough yeah <laughs> you could pump the brain waves you know into some yeah. in- interesting forms like wow i never thought we'd be talking about this i knew <laughs> that's how this show goes <laughs> that's how, how we, we roll how to cope with uh with these things and have some p- tools have the a tool yeah. kit. the yeah. only thing i want to add to all that is lily i need you to open up an old folks home that I can go to uh, <laughs> eventually, where I can eat acid oh. in peace. <laughs> Holy shit, dude! And you know, okay, wait. I think you might have just like in my in my second wave of like you know future future like empire. <laughs> right. I would go and open it, but the only thing is, is I would probably want to open it in like well, Patagonia is difficult because 
the winters are hard or the summer actually in Patagonia, but like maybe Switzerland, but that's also got the same issue. I have to think about it, but yeah, I think the compound itself could be, this is a really really interesting idea though, because you could like, they do have that. They have like senior communities that have, you have to apply for membership, certain kind of people, you know, like get in certain don't, it's just like applying to college. You have to write an essay. Yeah, because then you could have, DJs come and <laughs> you could have, I mean, if I like, because then it would be nice to have really, you could have interesting kind of visual audio visual mm-hmm. things for, for people to, mm-hmm. to interact with, engage with. You could have light installation artists just come and maybe, yeah, it depends on what the enrollment is and, and how. <laughs> we have to get an endowment. We have to get a backer. We'll get Elijah in on that. Behind it. Yes. <laughs> and then we can open just an epic, calm, serene place to have a groovy, you know, outro. This is yeah, way more. Scott's epic. right. We'll get Elijah in and we'll just do a Lord of the Rings themed <laughs> acid trip nursing home in New no, Zealand. No, no, I, I, let's not do that. A Lord of the Re- a Lord of the yeah, Rings. Yeah, we don't want it to be Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no. pure yeah, psychedelia. What's I'm, more, I'm, what's more peaceful than the Shire? You can hang out in the Shire and no, no, smoke no. your Lord of the Rings is really stressful. It's basically like <laughs> a metaphor for a global pandemic. It's about the decimation of the human race. I mean. We've already gone through that by 90. Let's like just vibe out. <laughs> oh, even, yeah. as gonna... saying, even as I was saying Holy Mountain, I was like, I don't know if I want to watch Holy Mountain. On <laughs> <laughs> I think Fantastic Planet and Planet Earth was was a better. Yellow Submarine. Okay, well, we'll do that. Yeah, exactly. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's have the outro be like good vibes. You I mean, this I'm... is way better than what we're doing to old people right now, which is like giving them bingo night. And shit. Um, I think I think most people would appreciate it. A lot of a lot of people do seem of a certain of a senior age do seem to enjoy the shit out of bingo. They do, but that's because they haven't been offered the acid. <laughs> and and the, the light imagine how much more they'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> they were they, tripping they, balls. If if I all mean, you were ever served was a hamburger, that would be your favorite food. But you, you know, know there in recent times there are a lot of aspects in in the medical field and psychology and where they're talking about the positive benefits of microdosing psilocybin mm-hmm. and LSD. I'm, 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 I'm speaking absolutely seriously and scientifically is because it's something that has had a stigma and has been misunderstood. And so locked off in, in a certain way, which, which is such a powerful thing that, that is a tool and does access parts of, of your perception in a way that, that nothing else does and so it's like i don't know i just feel like as crazy as this idea is and we're talking about it and maybe exposing it and someone else is going to run with it but maybe not maybe it'll be fine but like you know it does seem to me like because i think the wildest crazy ideas sometimes just end up being oh yeah of course that's why wouldn't there be something like that and maybe there already is even i mean you know i guess there is communes of some sort but like you know what i mean like it's like there's something about it that just sounds uh, oh, like it's like I feel like Neo in the Matrix, just it's figuring t- it all out. <laughs> it reminds me of like like do y'all know about ayahuasca and like ayahuasca retreats and shit? Yes, yeah, I haven't. 
I haven't done that, but yes. No, I would I would love to. I'm dying to do yeah. one of those. Um, yeah. My understanding is that you're probably going to shit your pants a couple times. But the thing is, like, you're <laughs> you're at, like, a resort where there's people there. And this is all they do is, like, administer mm-hmm. and then take care of you. So this is basically that, you know. Oh, it's, um, like a, it's, it's, a, it's a shaman that, like, it's like a, sure. it's a ritual, you know. It's like this is in indigenous cultures. They, they did this as a as a ritual so it's it's new to us but it's been centuries old for a lot of indigenous for sure yeah just as long as whatever we set up when we go into this uh, business venture together um there's always going to be uh, a judd crandall there to be warning people (laughs) off of certain certain drugs oh you don't want to take that heroin yeah uh fred from from the movie who, by the yeah. way, it's like we, we didn't really talk about this, but I think Fred Gwynn is one of the more iconic uh, Stephen King characters as Who played right? by Fre- Fred Gwynn, Fred Gwynn. Uh, the, the old the old guy in, um, in Pet oh, Cemetery. Yeah. Oh, my God. He was cast amazingly in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's I love him. He's like one of the the all time like that. He's up there with like Kathy Bates and Misery or, or yeah. Nicholson. Oh, in the my Shining. God. Misery. Yeah. 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 Think that was the other one that I read that was probably yeah. Also, well, that co- that combines both of your love. There's uh, Stephen King and romance novels <laughs> in that one. Whoa, <laughs> that's not just like that's really you're freaking me out right now. <laughs> you didn't even have to pay for this, Lily. This is like a like a Psych- deep dive into your psychosis, yeah, or your your deep psyche. Dive- of our <laughs> all of our psychosis is i think yes. because, i think because of this moment in time this covid kind of humanity reduced to this fragile state of of just having to i guess ex- feel everything that we normally don't let, allow ourselves time to feel because we're able to distract so much it's like yeah. It's weird because we're all so much more exposed and open and it's like just pouring out these things i mean i i do i'm sure that we would have like a deep psychedelic conversation no matter what we're talking about one of the most powerful stories and and movies you know made by the master but it's like i also feel like talking about these things in such a in such a exposed nerve kind of moment in time is like it's really you feel it you know that's sort of one of the um I don't I don't know how to put this without sounding insensitive. There are very few saving graces to the situation we're in now. But I do find that there is some comfort in the fact that everyone is going through it. So many people have lost their jobs, they're out of work, they've mm. they've lost people to the virus, uh whatever the situation is, but it's everyone. You know, it's not just like one city that's dealing with it or a couple of families. And I, I do think there is some, some comfort to the idea that we're all in it together. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be uniting us. Um, <laughs> you, would, you would think that going through a universally shitty thing together would, would sort of bring people together. But in one of the many dark twists of, of 2020, it seems to be uh, driving a lot of folks further apart, which is, <laughs> you know, just another one of this year's cruel jokes, I guess. It's funny because I'm reading right now a book called The Great Mortality by John Kelly. And it's an incredible, incredible book about the history of the, the Black Plague, the Black Death, the, yeah. the 
biggest catastrophe, the biggest epidemic and catast- catastrophe in human history. It was mm-hmm. like a third of the population of of Europe died in in, in a year, thirteen forty seven to thirteen forty eight, and this is like the dark ages. Before that, there was two years of, of famine in Europe and rains, torrential rains that killed the crops and people were dying. And then right when the weather, like the sun came out, then the the black death came. And it's, it's just weird reading it because, you know, you're reading 1347 and it's the dark ages and there's no irrigation and there's no plumbing and people's shit and piss is just in the streets and they butcher the animals and the blood and intestines just run down the streets and bodies are just piling up and they're it's just like it's like on a level that's so it's impossible to fathom and they're right and they're on top of it going through an epidemic and it's like and and actually you read it they're doing similar things of trying to quarantine trying to write it out it's putting things over their mouths and it's just like a really interesting thing to look at it and look at human history and understand like because some of the things like that come out of it that you don't understand in the moment is like in Europe it was everything was operating with the the feudal system and it's these lords and and barons and people with these you know castles and things and then the villages that worked around the castles with peasants that were working for meager wages and they had no power and they were you know, suffering and then under the feudal system. And then this plague came and wiped out a third of the workforce. And then basically the lords and barons were then left to have to be forced to look at the the people that they had and have to pay them more because they, it's, it's just interesting how in a moment when you're experiencing, you can't understand how these catastrophes shift the shape of society and how it moves and how it functions. It's like we're in this moment and then we have to see how we have to write it out and see how it it shapes the way society yeah. fun- functions. You know, it's like we go on and persevere. And when you read it and see what society was, was like then, I mean, the Mongols were savagely conquering everyone in the, in the from the 1200s to right before, you know, the famine. And it's like literally the plague came and killed them and helped kill them. And so it, they weren't able to invade and com- conquer Europe. History is just an interesting thing to back at to try to kind of get some, I, that's what I've been, one of the things I've been doing to try to get some context or perspective on like yeah. large scale catastrophe affecting, I highly recommend the book. It's definitely intense, but it's so amazing. It's like, I don't think I realized that the black plague hit in the 1300s. For some reason, yeah. I was thinking that was more recent than that, like 16 or 1700s. I there, mean, was other, there, was the, other, there was other ones. There was, there was different. There was a Justinian plague. There was other plagues before it, and there was, there's been after it. And also just like climate change was a part of it. The bubonic plague came from Mongolia, and it's like in the rodent population. They, suddenly when rodents, it's actually something that's happened in a lot of the plague outbreaks. It's like... The weather changes and then suddenly it's wetter and then they start multiplying and it's the fleas on the rats that carry the plague. So it's like these rat populations start booming. And it's also globalism affecting it because what happened was with the way the plague came to to the West was like it was in in Mongolia and in, in the mountains, these rats with these fleas. And then the population boomed and then it got cold and they needed to 
they come down into the cities to look for food. And then the Silk Road was happening then and trade was booming. And so you have these tradesmen traveling the Silk Road from China coming down through Eurasia. And now these rats jump ship onto these carts and come. And then they arrive in Kaffa from where they get on board ships. Then on the ships, they end up going to Constantinople. And then from there out into the westward, into Europe. And they hit Sicily and then Italy was hit really hard then too, oddly. It's wild to think of these things. Definitely made me think of fleas. I already, fleas already kind of <laughs> give me the creeps because they're so relentless and, and hard to deal with. And they're so powerful, these little fuckers. And then it's like, that's where they, those are the little demons that carry this plague. They can just eviscerate populations of people, you know? It's like, we think we're so, I think we got it all together at times. And then. Nope. <laughs> yeah, never, not so much. no control <laughs> no it's the illusion of control you know it's that idea that we're that we are in charge and we're really not there's bigger things than us at all times that can squash us if they want to yeah. lily one thing i wanted to ask about was or i don't really have a question i just wanted to tell you 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 directed my favorite episode of the first season of castle rock which mm. is past perfect oh um, oh so fun. Yeah. How did you get brought into the fold on, on that thing? Well, one of the producers I know from Bad Robot, Ben Stevenson, this wonderful guy and, and mutual fans and wanted to work together. And he he told me about it. And he was like, we're doing this Stephen King, this, this, it's not, a, it's not based on anything Stephen King. It's just set within the Stephen King. Right. It's, it's like built out of everything built out of the world comes from Stephen King lore. So it's like there's all these little Easter eggs in there and like things that if you knew when I read, because I did episode eight. So I read all seven, I think it was episode eight or something like farther along the way. So I read yeah. all seven scripts or whatever. It was like reading a this book and really suspenseful and fun. And it's weird also because when you do TV, you show up and do it. You don't know what's going to happen next. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're just like, okay, I'm telling this part of the story. And then I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> right. It's fun. But it, it's like, you know, there's so many homages and, and little loving references. So that was fun. And I think another thing that was fun for getting to do that was was also the episode I did was kind of the one where the, the shit hits the fan. It's like everything is this, it's this slow building suspense and, and terror like something's gonna happen something and suddenly it's like i got to do the episode that had like a seven page knife fight and like someone getting <laughs> yeah axed in the skull and just stuff that i haven't gotten to do yet and me. all this shit with the bed and breakfast like i remember oh my god i love you it. know yeah. yeah like watching the show like the way i remember it is you introduce that element and it kind of comes out of nowhere at the top of that episode and you're like the fuck is going on here and it's it's so perfectly executed it's it's such a great little thread in the middle of everything else that was yeah. fun because those two were amazing and so funny darkly funny that couple and 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 they're so amazing and it's like it was almost like a little mini sidebar like a little vignette like a movie yeah a movie. yeah so, so it could be whatever i i really got to kind of do have fun with it because it was like its own little stand up and you know like a little short film actually the actress in that couple, Lauren, Lauren Bowles, she's she has a part in my in my new movie that's that's coming out next. Whenever movies come out, <laughs> like, yeah. Because um, I just finished it. I actually just finished 
you know, is all this the Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, yeah. And I met Lauren on on directing that episode of Castle Rock, and she was just. I had so much fun killing her. It's like (laughs) joy. Like that was one of the most epic death setups. Just the, the rig of, if you don't remember, she stabs herself. She's in a knife fight with a guy and then she stabs herself in the neck with the, with a knife and bleeds out. And it was like this really, they were really amazing, talented crew. The people that worked on that show, it was, it was really fun to work with them. And she was so good. She died. One of the most epic deaths. So I was like, I got to do something with her. I'm not going to tell you what she does, but she does have a really, a pretty epic little moment in, in Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. So (laughs) what is the movie about? What can you tell us about it? Um, you know, it's so hard with my movie. Imagine like trying to explain what the Bad Batch is before you saw it. Like, <laughs> All right. Sure. It's like, I, I, or even Girl, I think it's just hard to, I would say Mona Lisa is basically, it's, it's an adventure film, a fa- slightly a fantastical-ish adventure film. It's set in New Orleans, which is already a, a fantastical surreal magical place it was such an amazing experience shooting there um it's basically about a girl who escapes from um a mental asylum who mm. who has a certain ability and she basically rejoins she she rejoins civilization in new orleans i don't think there's anything i can say that would explain it it's it's kind of, <laughs> that's maybe, good to hear if, if it reminds me of movies i'd say it reminds me of i don't even know like maybe it's a little bit like E.T. What? No, <laughs> that was the not- last movie I expected you to say just then. No, it's nothing like E.T. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um And Kate Hudson Kate Hudson's the lead, yes? No, she's it's an ensemble. Kate Hudson isn't oh. the lead. The lead is Johnson Joe, a, a beautiful, wonderful Korean actress um, from South Korea who came and was in my film. She lives in South Korea. She was in a film called Burning. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Years ago, she's so she's actually the lead. She's oh okay. But Kate Hudson has a very cool part in the movie. I, I definitely <laughs> it's, fun, it's fun to take. Take actors and actresses that you know and have seen. The whole cast is incredible. Craig Robinson is in it, and he's I fucking love outstanding. Craig I mean, I fucking love him too. He's, he's incredible, and Kate Kate Hudson's incredible, and then um, Ed Skrine has uh, an awesome. And there's a, a kid, Evan, uh, a little. He was nine at the time that we shot the movie. Now he's ten. He's amazing. So Evan Witten. So it's like an ensemble and and there's a lot of like Lauren, there's a lot of characters that she kind of meets along the way. So it's a really, it's a really fun ride. And I got to say, like, it's for as much as the Bad Batch was something where I was looking at some of the dark aspects of modern American society and mm-hmm. thinking about it and deconstructing it and kind of looking at it, you know, in, in, in an extreme way with an extreme metaphor. But actually now it doesn't really feel that extreme to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. um, I rewatched the, I don't like to watch my own movies really, but I rewatched it during quarantine and I was like, wow, this feels different now. It's, yeah. I can but, imagine. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I was really looking at a dark feeling about things in America and the deformity of the American dream in the Bad Batch. And, and with Mona Lisa, I think for myself, cause I, as I said, I, I had gone through a really difficult 
loss and I wanted mm-hmm. to do a movie for myself that helped me somehow feel in my own way optimistic. It's not like sugary or anything, but it's like, how do we stay optimistic? And and what is, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's a movie that, that was that for me. And, so, and I'm actually relieved now with the twists and turns that like life has taken so that it gives me joy to think, oh, it's nice to be able to share a movie like that with everybody. It's like kind of a group hug. It's like, I, yeah. I, want, I want to give you, I'm so happy that this is what's now. It's like, let's just all have a group hug and, and stuff. There might be some slaps and pinches and stuff along the way, though. <laughs> I'm sure it's a much different yeah. <laughs> movie, but I just saw Bill and Ted face the music. And oh, I haven't seen it yet. I, oh, holy my boy, shit. My boy, it's, Keanu. Is it awesome? Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's just that's what uh, you describing Mona Lisa made me think of that because watching that was just like a big hug. Yeah. You know, it's upbeat, it's positive, it's hopeful. Like the fir- the first fucking time I felt hope in the past few months was like watching Bill and Ted face the music, which <laughs> kind of sounds a little ridiculous, but not really. It felt perfectly timed for right now and how we're all well, that, feeling it's and, on my yeah i'm like ready you know it's kiana's birthday yesterday yeah yeah i saw yeah. that yeah he's what a gift thank god for keanu i recently rewatched the matrix and it's right amazing but yeah i'm gonna watch that that's good i'm glad you like that reminded me that's a good one to like have a hug yeah it'll <laughs> it'll cheer you up we had alex yeah. winter on the show uh, oh like nice what did he what he Stephen King. Zone. Okay. That yeah. was a, a book I didn't like fully engage with, I don't think. Yeah, I was, I'm not so big on that one, but I do like the movie a lot. And mostly that episode was just, just uh, all of us just talking about how awesome Cronenberg is. Oh, you know, that's which, interesting. Yeah. Cronenberg well, is awesome. Yeah, he is. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about before we let you go is a couple of years ago, uh, it was announced that you were going to be leading the charge on a like a like a gender swapped slash female led remake of cliffhanger is that still happening well no because i wouldn't describe the the cliffhanger reinvention that i'm going to make in that way okay um, fair enough i am taking cliffhanger and re uh you know putting it in my laboratory and and yeah. do doing something that i am very because you know i i'm, I'm very much a I'm just, I love action survival movies. Mm-hmm. And I love also that just, I love all climbing movies. I love all like survival movies. And I had this idea. And so I would say I'm not doing like a remake. I never really thought of myself as someone that, you know, is into that type of approach on, on things. But okay. I would say it's like a reinvention that definitely has the DNA of things that made cliffhanger cliffhanger. And, and yeah, there does happen to be a female that has a very um, important part, but you know, I happen to be a female that has a very important part in my own existence. So I can't, (laughs) I can't, I can't help that how I see reality happens to be from a fucking female. I have boobs and a vagina, you know, so it might show up in my movies and that's just, how it is you know it's like totally but there's also a lot of men in the movie too <laughs> i'm like you know it's we got all the all the flavors of the rainbow yeah i'm sure hey, some men can pe- have boobs too yeah, that's true. <laughs> very, I, I, very- <laughs> I think the impulse for a lot of people would 
me to ask how you replace Sly in a move in a reinvention like that. But I think I'm I'm thinking about Lithgow, who is like to me like the best part of Cliffhanger. Have Lithgow you got like, have you got a big juicy role for you know like a Lithgow type in a in yeah? Your I mean, come on, any good like action espionage like type totally, story dope. has to have a good any movie is only as good as the however bad your bad guy is yes I mean, absolutely like, fear is like you know a perfect yeah. perfect like demonstration about that but like yeah you absolutely like a really fun group of characters and it's it's a fun it's a fun story that i want to i want to do up a mountain so <laughs> well I'm, I'm excited so to hear that you're still doing that, that. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I think that the original is like this gangster, iconic B movie, but it's definitely not a perfect movie. And it has fun elements that you could take and like kind of go out in a whole different direction and do things in a different way. Totally. There's room for changing elements of cliffhanger around. I don't think it's a perfect movie. And, and I'm sure there's going to be people that like fight that to the end. It's like anytime oh, yeah. you go and take something, I mean, look at Pet Cemetery. That's the perfect, yeah. but see, like I would argue like Pet Cemetery is a untouchable masterwork of a film. It's like, what are you going to do? Like, why are you remaking it? It's like yeah. remaking Back to the Future. It's like you, you can't, and maybe that's how people feel about Cliffhanger. And so I'm fucked as far <laughs> as those people go, but whoever, is ready for a ride, those people can go on the ride. And maybe no, the grumpy ones can go on the ride too. And just at the <laughs> end, they'll be like, okay, yeah. Here's <laughs> okay. the thing. As long as you're bringing a different perspective, you're bringing something new to the table, that's what matters. What what, what yeah. people don't like is, I mean, listen, like I think that the Pet Cemetery remake misses the mark, but they, they come with an idea that's different. They they come with a different approach and it's, it's a fascinating I idea. I, I don't know if you saw the remake. I, but. I didn't. I would never even like, <laughs> it's like watching. I'm glad to hear that though, but I didn't, I wouldn't, I didn't. But that's good to know. I'm glad they didn't try to blow by blow remake the, the original. The problem is, is that they, they make a big choice and the choice is to kill Ellie instead of Gage. And what's interesting about that to me is that by doing that, Ellie is now old enough to communicate in, in a way, mm-hmm. you know, she's not a toddler coming back. Right. There is that little bit of moment where she doesn't just come back and start killing people is, you know, she comes back as that changed person the dark version of you know of of the 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 bright and happy little girl that she was before and there's there's meat there i I don't i don't know if they you know i wouldn't say that they fully knocked it out of the park but i can see why you look at that and go okay i can understand why this movie can't exist what people really don't like is when when you just like remake something and you just hit the same tired beats and you do a whole bunch of hey remember when you like this part you know last time soul question yeah it can be it's really like because i love the original cliffhanger it's like infinitely watchable it's so fun it's so absurd i mean the bats do you remember the bats and the oh yeah hopefully you'll just want to watch and sly stabbing the dude on the on the stalactite (laughs) that's really yeah that's rad i also the other thing i like about cliffhanger is it's almost set up like video game rules right like the money bundles have dropped 
like in this area, like they're in like three places or however many it is. And like, they've got to go to those, each of those locations. That's like, that's video game storytelling right there. And it, and it works, you know, and it has like a little treasure hunt element to the whole thing. That's really cool. It does. It is. Fuck. I yeah. love that movie. But All right. Fuck it. I won't remake it. No, I do. No, no, I, I want to see your take on it. Cause I think, I think you'll, you'll do something really interesting with that. Whole, no, I have, yeah. I have something really, I'm very excited about. So it's, it's, it's weird because for me, because I'm not going off the script, I'm not going off anything. I kind of took it and did my own thing. So it's like in my mind, I just think of it as its own thing. So it's weird right when you have an established property where you're like, oh yeah, it's like, it's like the same thing you would go through if you're doing a book that an ad- adaptation. It's like, you, it's a strange thing to be like, oh yeah, I'm doing this, this kind of something that already exists for people. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, I can imagine that changing the it's dimensions trip, of yeah. everything. Yeah, <laughs> nobody reads anymore. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reading right now. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Uh, it was a pleasure. This was fun. Yeah, yeah. I, and uh, I look forward to our our nursing home uh, venture. Yes, we uh, go hit up some Elon Musk. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll start playing playing some acid, acid chips into yeah. people's heads. Oh boy! Oh boy! What did what did I say? Okay. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. Really, yes. that was a pleasure. That was fun. Many thanks to Anna Lily, or as she wanted to be called, Lily. Yes. <laughs> Many thanks to Lily. that. That kind of threw me off. I have to admit, like I've been calling her Anna Lily ever since uh, I first heard of her as a filmmaker. When we first started talking to her about coming onto the show. I had that back and forth with her where I didn't, I didn't realize she was going by Lily now. And I, I felt, I felt dumb. I don't know why. It's like, how could I possibly have known that? It's not like I've seen Lily in uh, years or we're friends or anything, but nevertheless, I felt very stupid. So we should probably talk about Fangoria. Shouldn't we? We should. We are now coming to you live from, well, not live, but recorded uh, (laughs) underneath the banner of the Fangoria podcast network which is um, really exciting for us. We have a home base now. We got a team, sort of. Comrades in arms, for sure. Definitely like-minded king fanatics. Uh, Every single person that we've uh, talked to, from Rebecca McKendry to, uh, of course, our friends Meredith Borders and Phil Nobile Jr., they're they're just they're all on the same camp as as uh, we are. So it's it's a great family. Uh, we just want to assure that, as you can tell, this episode hasn't really changed. Uh, uh, the new Fango episodes are going to still creatively be run by us. We make all the creative calls. We're still editing the show. Everything's still as it was. We just have a a nice parent company now. I guess you can you can call it. Yeah, I think in the weeks ahead, you'll see. Some slight additions to the show, maybe a maybe a couple of ads up front, or um, uh, we were thinking about bringing in a third host, Poochie, to kind of sit in and be a regular third talking head on the show. But um, you know, we'll we'll get to that. Just minor little things like that. Nothing, nothing drastic. Nothing major. major. Yeah, nothing well, major. The kids love Poochie, so oh, love them. Every time, every time they're listening to the Kingcast, and Poochie's not, you know, coming through their headphones, they're like, "Where's Poochie?" Yep, got to get that six to ten demographic on the King Cast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this is this is really exciting for us. I was excited by how excited everyone else was when they made the announcement. It was a a huge outpouring of um, support and well wishes and all that sort of stuff. And uh, 
man, that just that really made our week and, and the election that too. So next week on the Kingcast, we are entering Thanksgiving, and mm-hmm. we kind of were talking amongst ourselves and said, "What is the most dad movie of all King adaptations?" And the number one answer, of course, is the Shawshank Redemption. So we chose our episode on the Shawshank Redemption to be our Thanksgiving week episode. Yes. And we have a very exciting guest lined up for this one. Um, How do I tease him? Man, this is tough. Anything I'm coming up with would seem to be too obvious a clue. I'll say the number 21. That's my clue. That's my one and only clue for this one. Interesting. That's that's Mm -hmm. a good one. Unpack that, KingCast listeners. You guys have figured out all the other ones because our clues were too obvious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that means that within 30 seconds of this going live, somebody's gonna <laughs> someone's going to get tweet it, yeah. us exactly what it is. Good episode. Good guest. You know, obviously top tier King movie. And it's a movie that you kind of hold Shawshank up as just in the back of your mind. Like, yeah, it's, it's just a great movie or whatever. It's a great story. Then you reread it and you rewatch the movie and you go, no, there's a reason why this is. Yeah, no shit. Incredible. Yeah. It's a two and a half hour movie that feels like it's 15 minutes long. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just one of those just like all timer lightning in a bottle movies. And it's a great, great, great story. And we dive into both. Yeah, not a not a particularly funny episode. Though, uh, the, the guest is known for being funny, but it's mostly just us gushing about how much we love Shawshank. <laughs> so uh, I think everyone will be on board with that. No uh, controversial opinions in the big Thanksgiving week episode. And um, what do we have coming to the, uh, the Patreon this Friday? Eric? Yeah. For our patrons this Friday, we have a bonus episode. It's another dark tower themed one, since that's what you guys always ask for. <laughs> we keep giving you dark tower stuff and we think, okay, that'll be enough. And then there's like, no, we want more. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we are getting into the nitty gritty looking at the pop culture influences of Book five of the Dark Tower series, The Wolves of the Kala. A hyper, a hyper specific uh, angle for this one. There's a lot to talk about, as it turns out, because Wolves of the Kala is overflowing with uh, pop cultural flourishes. That sort of turns into a conversation about the whole book itself and its place within the Dark Tower series. And it's it's good Dark Tower talk. If you like Dark Tower stuff, you're really going to you're really going to dig this one. Our guest for this episode is Spencer Perry, who is a colleague of ours. He writes for comicbook.com. He is super nerdy about Dark Tower, but in a different way than we are, because he came to the books late. Like he's we, mm-hmm. we even reference this in the episode where his opinion on the latter books is kind of like those kids who the first their first star wars movies were the prequels yeah so he he was his dark tower is the latter books that the postman accident books wolves through the dark tower mm-hmm. uh so his opinion on those are i guess more favorable than than ours and his, his opinion on the ones that came before are less favorable uh than ours so so it's an interesting dynamic but uh you know, he makes his points. I like the little bonus episodes where uh, uh, someone is at odds <laughs> with with our take. It keeps the conversation interesting. Come on, tell us we're fucking idiots. That's what we want to hear. <laughs> so I guess we'll see our patrons on Friday for that Wolves of the Kala bonus up. And everybody else will talk to you guys next week when we enter Shawshank. For a redemption. For we're, we are going to redeem the shit out of ourselves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Y'all have a good week. Nah, see you next week.